0: You up. You are, you are our God, and we follow you. And we we trust in you throughout our brokenness, throughout our pain. We lean on you because God, you have proven faithful. We love you.
1: This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 36. That can be found on page 820 in the Red Bible under your seat. Matthew 14, verses 13 to 36. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning. Good to see you all here. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. Glad to have you here. I'd like to just open in prayer, and then we'll jump right into the passage. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning to hear what it is that you would have for us in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would grow in desire and delight in you, um, and that we would grow more and more um, into—we would bear more and more of a resemblance to you. Thank you that, that through this passage you communicate to us that, that we have everything we need in Christ. That you relate to us on the abundance of your grace, and not on the virtue of our resources. We love you, Lord. Amen. So I'm going to jump right in today. Let's begin by rereading verses 13 to 14, and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. So when Jesus heard this, meaning the death of John the Baptist... He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So I want to stop there just for a second. I want to try to describe for for a minute what the mood is at this point in the passage. If I had to put it in one word, I think the mood right now is foreboding foreboding, when we really see this in its context. Last week, Aaron preached, which, by the way, thank you to Aaron for preaching. I thought he did a bang-up job last week. So thank you for Aaron. That was awesome. Last week, he he preached on a really difficult passage, this moment where John the Baptist is killed. Not just killed, but I mean killed in this pathetic, unjust, violent way, right? And it's this moment where, like, the significant beautiful figure in the kingdom is slain. And so you've got to ask ask these questions like, how can a representative of the kingdom, a prophet of God, a friend of Jesus, die in this way? What kind of kingdom is this? And so we see this moment where Jesus hears the news that John is dead. They were likely childhood friends. They certainly interacted with each other often when Jesus launched his ministry and then suddenly... You know, John's been in prison, he's given no trial. Jesus is told, John was just beheaded in prison. And, and remember from last week's passage, too, that Herod, when he first hears about Jesus, he thinks, oh, great, John is resurrected. And so when Jesus hears this news, it's not just grief, but this is danger. Because the same killer, like John's killer, is now likely after Jesus, Right? So Jesus gets into a boat, takes all the disciples into a boat, and they're going to go seek a place to be alone, to, to be safe, and, and likely also to grieve. But when they get ashore, there's actually already a crowd that's gathered. And so this crowd, I mean, this is a desolate place. It says it's kind of like a wilderness area that they, that they pull ashore in. And so this crowd has come from all the surrounding towns. Like they have gone out of their way... To find Jesus and to seek his help. So you've got to imagine that they've heard about John too. And maybe they're looking for answers. Maybe they're confused, grieved. How could this happen? I've got to imagine that some of them are ready to rise up and do some damage. There's anger. And then there's probably some of them that aren't even thinking about John. They're not thinking about kingdoms and kings. The problems of their lives are so overwhelming. They don't have the headspace for that. They just want the world to take it easy on them for a minute. And so all these people are going to Jesus for help. And so what's Jesus going going to do? How is he going to respond to evil? How is he going to respond to the darkness? I think what Jesus does is really important for us today. So maybe you're here and you're sort of like the disciples, right? You're a follower of Jesus. You love Jesus. But maybe you look around at this confused Volatile moment in history, and you just have no idea what it means to follow him right now. Many of your coworkers find your faith irrelevant. Maybe they don't even know about it. And maybe the ones that do hate what they think it stands for. Maybe oftentimes following Jesus just feels overwhelming. It's hard to imagine being there for others when you hardly have the resources to be there for yourself. You often feel like you don't have it in you to follow Jesus. Now that might be some of you. Some of you might be like the crowd, where you're not following Jesus necessarily, but you're looking around at the world today where there are nonsensical, terrible shootings in New Zealand mosques, where there's corruption and hypocrisy across the entire government and the leadership, and you can't help but feel like the promises of this prosperous, sexualized, globalized world, can't help but feel like they're lacking in returns. Because no matter how many more freedoms you have, your life still feels hollow. And so maybe you're not a Christian yet, but you're, you're exploring spirituality, and so you've gone to see if Jesus has anything to offer. Whatever boat you're in today, Jesus does have a lot to offer. And one of the things that I think he has to offer for us today is the strength to live courageously. Strength to live courageously, despite all the outside pressures. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by living courageously is living for something greater than ourselves. I think that Jesus offers the ability to live for something bigger than our immediate needs, bigger than our immediate happiness. And yet, I don't think that Jesus is going to help us find this courage by looking to ourselves. I think he's going to help us find it by looking to him. So take heart. Take heart because Jesus is what we are not. So we're going to see two reasons to take heart. First, we take heart from Christ because he is enough when we are not. So let's reread verses 15 to 17. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day's now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. So they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, bring them to me. So at this moment, with, with this crowd sitting there, you might imagine that Jesus is going to like try to mount an uprising, riot. He's got a martyr now in John. So if ever there was a time for him to like rise up, this is it, right? We've got people, they have a martyr. There's tons of, you know, over 5,000 people there. This would be the moment, but that's not how... Jesus's kingdom comes. That's how earthly kingdoms come. Instead, Jesus has compassion for the crowds. He cares for the crowds. Extends healing in, in, into the into the crowd. Healing their sick. Announcing the kingdom. But then the, the the day grows long, and the disciples are are saying like, okay, let's let's park this for today. The day is over. These people need to get fed. Send them into the surrounding towns. And this part is hilarious to me, where. Jesus basically says, like, okay, then you feed them, right? You do it. And this is like a wild request, because it, I think it's, it's, it's important for us to consider this, too. This is a wild request, and sometimes we feel like Jesus is making this kind of request of us, right? That somehow, as, as believers, we're, we're supposed to follow the way of Jesus, we're supposed to do it while also experiencing all the pressures of just being alive, Right? So it's not as though we become a Christian and then suddenly we're like evacuated out of the culture. We stop watching the news. All our relationships instantly become awesome and not messy in the least. Right? All the discontentment and confusion of our time goes away. All things become clear. It's not like that. Right? We continue to live life here in the northern Chicago suburbs, feeling all the pressures of what it is to be human in this historical moment. And on top of that, we're supposed to follow Jesus. And so I think that we often have the same reaction as the disciples because it's not just the crowds that are low on food, we are. And Jesus tells us to feed the crowds. With what? How? Right? I don't have anything to give. And here's what's amazing, if we can come to accept that, if we can actually come to accept the reality that we don't have anything to give, then we are actually on the brink of living the life Jesus has for us. It's not just the crowds that are low on food, we are too, and Jesus is not surprised, and he is not unprepared. Let's read the next few verses. I'll reread 17, and then continue from there. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Jesus said, bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So Jesus has the disciples bring him whatever they have, what they have are five loaves and two fish. So this is just dismally short of what is necessary to feed all these people. And you've got to imagine the scene where Jesus takes, you know, I imagine like this basket of five loaves and two fish. The disciples are all standing around thinking like, this is ridiculous. He thanks God for the five loaves and two fish, and then reaches into the basket and hands, let's say, a couple loaves and the fish to Peter, Right? And so Peter's like, all right, let's go with this, right? So he takes the five loaves and fish, he goes over to, or the two loaves and fish, he goes over to the first family, hands it to them, and maybe he trots back to Jesus, thinking like, okay, I guess that's that. Good for that family. And then suddenly he's handed another two loaves and a fish. Then he's back out to another family, hands them two loaves and a fish, has to trot back, empty-handed to Jesus. And as he's walking back, he's seeing all the other disciples. And John has two loaves and a fish. And Thaddeus over here also has two loaves and a fish, and all of them are going out into the crowds, giving what they have. They're empty-handed now. And then they have to walk back to Jesus, and he's reaching into this basket and handing them more and more and more. So that each trip they're making, they have to carry from Jesus these, this bread and fish, hand it off to a family, become empty-handed again, and then return to Jesus and be replenished over and over and over again. And no matter how many times they're returning to Christ, he keeps pulling loaves and fish out of this basket until everybody is fed, satisfied, full. Like they've all committed gluttony. There's 12 baskets of bread left over from what's just happened. Because no matter how many times the disciples went back to Jesus, He had everything they needed. We don't follow Jesus by our own resources. We do it by his. Jesus is asking us to bring whatever we have to the table. And it will always fall short. And our confidence is not that somehow... The cards are going to fall out in a way where what we bring is going to be enough. The idea is that we bring everything we have, and he multiplies. We will never be enough. We will never have enough. Disciples of Jesus don't live by independence. Americans live by independence. And there's a lot of America in Christianity right now, and that's not always a good thing. Americans live by independence, but Christians live by dependence on the abundance of Jesus's grace. And so I'd like to point out a couple ways that this works out practically. Well, I'll point out two ways it works out in, in combating what we as Christians call sin, and then one way that it works out in terms of just spiritual friendship, being a community to each other and, and sort of being together for each other's growth. So as Christians, we're, we're committed to eradicating these destructive habits called sin. And so just to take a couple of them. First, how, how does relying on Jesus affect gossip? How does it affect gossip? So, so maybe this, this is one that, that affects you a lot, sort of maybe you boost yourself up by criticizing others. So like maybe in conversation, when they're not present, you bring up their flaws. Maybe it's a way that you show that you're in the know, like I'm close enough this, to this person to, to know why you shouldn't look up to them, you know? Or maybe you do it just as a way to feel more superior, right? Because in bringing up the flaws of another person, you sort of in some way make yourself look like you're in a position to bring up their flaws, right? Like you you make yourself a judge. Kind of helps you feel comfortable with yourself, confident. And maybe over time, gossip has become something you really rely on because otherwise, you just have no self esteem. So how do you overcome that? Because our impulse is to say, I got it together. Like, I don't need to gossip to feel better about myself because I have everything I need to feel good about myself. But as soon as you try that, you're going to notice that you don't have everything together, and that's precisely the reason you started gossiping in the first place. So you really can't go to your own resources to stop gossiping. So where do you go? you go to the abundance of Jesus' grace for you. That what God says of Jesus, he now says of you. Because you have been united with Christ. You have worth. The Father thinks of you with love. You don't need to put someone else down to have worth. And when you are tapped into that reality, into the abundance of Jesus' grace for you, despite the lack of your resources, change happens. Take lust. So right now, I was recently reading an article in The Atlantic. It was titled The Sex Recession. Right now, young people are having less and less and less sex. And the reason why is not because... They've suddenly be, like, attained abstinence. and they just, like, The reason why is because porn has become so pervasive that people are losing the, the ability to, to connect intimately uh, and, and the drive to do so. And so maybe you're one of the many, many, many people who have become addicts to porn. There's, there's many, not just among men anymore, a rising number of, among women as well. And so what what ends up happening, right? What are you doing? In in that moment, you're you're looking for this manageable, curated sexual experience without conversation, without responsibility, without commitment. And and hey, maybe it's not porn. Maybe you've been devaluing yourself and devaluing other people through one-night stands. But you won't find intimacy and connection in these things, but nor will you find it by simply cutting it all off? Because when you cut it all off, what you're going to realize is that the porn and Tinder and the one-night stands have been covering up deep loneliness. A deep sense of need for connection. And so when you cut it all off, there will just be a desert. And so what do you do? you don't have the resources to beat it. You look to the abundance of Christ. Because in Christ, there is a love that persists beyond the moment when the laptop closes. There is a love stronger than what you are finding. Not just between you and the Lord, as though that's not enough, but among the people of God in spiritual friendships within the church as we support one another and open up our lives to one another, because of Jesus, you are family. And so you will beat false intimacy through true intimacy. Sin isn't overcome by independence, but by dependence. I'll tell you this as well. This has become significant for me beyond just, like, sin. But as I sit across the table from, from friends and from some of you, what I'm realizing is that I do not have the resources to be of any kind of help. (laughs) I can give you advice. I can give my friends advice. And sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes just a practical, like, hey, you know, this is, this is a way that, you know, I don't know, like just, here's a habit that if you take this in, it'll, it'll probably be helpful. And that might be great. I can tell them some of my thoughts on things, and that might be helpful. It might frame things up in a way that helps folks move forward. But I can't affect change. I don't have enough for you. And you don't have enough for me. And so if I actually want to to be effective across the table from somebody, I have to give them Jesus. I have to tell them about the abundance of God's grace in Christ, about how God sees them because of the cross. I have to remind them of his love and of the hope that we have in Christ. We don't disciple people toward independence. We disciple each other toward a life lived in dependence on Jesus. We bring everything we have to the table and he multiplies. Now, for some of you, this may be strange. Maybe you're still exploring Christianity. And so this this whole talk has been a little bit in-house, right? We're talking about sin, discipleship. These are kind of buzzwords that don't make a ton of sense. Instead, you're more like the crowds. You're just exhausted by living in our historical moment, and I resonate with you. People are confused, worried. They're both trying to make it during an economic low point, while also trying to figure out how to answer questions that we've never had to think through before about race, politics, gender, sexuality, environmentalism, terrorism, class, and we do not have what it takes. And to add following Jesus on top of all that sounds ridiculous, but we have to remember that discipleship is a way of life lived not out of reliance on ourselves, but out of reliance on Jesus. It is not that we're adding an additional burden onto the already heavy burden. Discipleship is the act of exchanging a heavy burden for a light one. Following Jesus is rest for our souls. Christ is with us, and he doesn't need much to work with. We take heart from Christ because he is enough when we are not. Second, we take heart from Christ because he is strong when we are not. So let's reread verses 22 to 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus dismisses the crowd and he sends the disciples before him before he dismisses the crowd. In, in the book of John, the gospel of John, in this same moment is recorded, he records that the crowd after that miracle was so impressed and so blown away that they actually try to make Jesus king on that spot. Like, they, they do interpret this as like, this is a revolutionary moment, let's do this. Let's, like, throw a garbage can through somebody's windshield. This is awesome. And so instead, Jesus ducks the crowd, gets away, and instead finds a place to be alone and pray. And I just want to briefly point out that this passage doesn't just call us to depend on God, Jesus is modeling for us how to do it. That after pouring himself out for the crowds, he goes alone and prays. Meanwhile, the disciples are at sea once again, and once again they find themselves fighting the wind and waves. It it, it records that they're far from shore, which is that they should already, by the fourth watch of the night, have arrived. Like They are farther from their destination than they should be. And so this storm is a real threat. And the last thing they need right now is for something spooky to happen, right? But instead, at this moment, sure enough, they look up and there's a figure approaching them, which of course they're going to interpret as like, awesome, it's a dead fisherman. Fantastic, somebody who drowned is now approaching us. And so they freak out, it's a ghost, they're panicking, the figure is now very close. And suddenly, in the, like, there's this threatening storm, the boat's being tossed around, and suddenly this familiar voice shouts over to them, take heart. Have courage. Because the storm isn't that big of a deal. No, that's not what he says. You're not actually in that much danger. That's not what he says. He says, I'm here. Jesus just showed up. The reason to not be afraid is because it is I. And this part is amazing to me. Peter can be a blockhead. So can we. His reaction here, though, is so powerful and compelling. He he shouts out to Jesus. Well, actually, so he could shout out to Jesus. Awesome. Please calm the storm. (laughs) Just like you did a few chapters back, right? Like, let's get this. No, instead, Peter has this moment where he asks to get in the water. He asks to step on the water. I don't know why Peter asked to do that. (laughs) And I spent time thinking about it this week. And so I'm going to ask a different question that I can probably interact with better. (laughs) So, what is giving Peter the courage to try? What is giving Peter the courage to step out onto the world? So imagine this from his perspective. Peter is a fisherman. And so a fisherman knows quite a lot about nature. One thing you can't do with nature is control it. Like the robin at this window right now, banging on the glass. You can't control nature. It's always doing stuff that you have no control over, right? Peter knows this as a fisherman, right? Right? And suddenly, he's in the middle of this storm. He would have been well familiar with storms on the Sea of Galilee because they happened at the drop of a hat. It's this weird kind of meteorological place in the world where storms happen within seconds. I mean, they. so he would have been well familiar with storms and how dangerous they are. And one thing you don't do in a storm is attempt walking on the water. And suddenly, here's Jesus walking on the water. Now, imagine this, though, from Peter's perspective. Peter would have grown up in synagogue. He would have heard the scriptures preached constantly. And so when he sees Jesus walking on the water, he's not just seeing a really cool miracle. His mind might have gone to many different things. For instance, the Spirit of God hovering over the chaotic waters before creation. The Lord walking across the Red Sea. Or one particular verse in Job, in chapter 9, where it says, Yahweh alone stretches out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. Peter's mind would have been lit up by what he was seeing because Jesus is doing something that Yahweh alone does. And suddenly he gets this idea, I want to follow him on the waves. He's going to put himself at risk. He wants to step out on the waves. Jesus included him in the miracle of the 5,000. Maybe he'll include him in this one too. And he's not going to do it because he's like done a risk assessment and it's, it's all good. He's most likely going to come out on top. That's not it at all. He knows that if Jesus doesn't do something, he's a dead man. Courage, Peter's courage is not coming from himself, but from the power and abundance of Christ. That's where Peter's courage comes from. And that's where ours comes from, too. So, Elliot Cohen, he's a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University. He recently wrote an article for The Atlantic where he, was, he, he kind of came at the idea of courage and he approaches it from a really interesting angle. So, he thinks Americans lack courage. We lack courage. But only a certain type of courage. So, we kind of had have, have like like different t- kinds of courage. So, we, we've got physical courage as Americans. Like, we're willing to kind of train and 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 do things to our bodies to to be good at a sport or More where this applies physical courage is when you put yourself at risk to escape risk Right or to help a family member escape risk or a friend or something right Americans have physical courage Like if you know lots of breaking and enterings and in an altercation You know in America right because we have this kind of physical courage, so that's not what we lack We also don't lack the courage to take responsibility. So, like, Americans will often undertake hard tasks. You know, we'll we'll take on a huge project at work. We'll try to kind of make our dreams come true. Like, that's part of the American narrative, and so we we often do hard things. But that's really driven by ambition. So the first one's driven by self-preservation. The second one's driven by ambition. The kind of courage that he thinks we lack is moral courage he spends the rest of the article kind of, I guess it was a blog post on on the Atlantic Online, but he spends the rest of the, the blog post kind of unpacking this, and this is what I understood from it. By moral courage, he seemed to mean this. It's a willingness to put yourself at risk for something greater than yourself, even at the expense of safety and happiness. So think of many of the civil rights leaders of the past century, knowingly, standing up for justice, knowing that it's going to put a target on their back, right? But they were in love with justice. So the idea is that you're putting yourself at risk, you're missing out on something, but you do it because it's all in the service of something greater and more important than yourself, and the joy that you take from doing it is the joy of serving this greater thing. And Elliot Cohen thinks that this is seriously lacking in the United States. And when I read that, it occurred to me that one of the reasons for this might be a religious reason. Like, few of us believe there is something greater than ourselves, right? We live in this historical moment where, whether we're religious or not, few of us believe there's anything greater than ourselves. I think this applies to Christians, too. So when secularism was rising in the West... Lots of people said, this is the end of religion and spirituality. The shackles of God are now going to drop. We're going to be free from religion. And most of them were entirely wrong, right? Religion did not go away. Here's what did happen, though. It was put in a different place. So the role of God in our lives didn't go away. It got displaced. So that God is no longer above us. We think of ourselves as above God. And so it's very hard for us to imagine that God would ask us to adjust to his way. We don't see him challenging our way of life. We're not interested in the God who would call us to any meaning deeper than the meaning we make for ourselves. Spirituality has become very therapeutic. We don't exist for God. He exists for us. And so if I think that way, It means that I'm kind of free to advance my desires at any cost. When there is nothing to live for greater than myself, then the only thing to live for is myself. Now here's the thing. Up to this point, the story that we've been told is that if we can just get rid of the shackles of religion, just get rid of the shackles of of God, we will experience incredible mental health. We'll no longer be living this kind of legalistic, difficult way of life because we'll be able to make our own meaning and it'll, it'll give us autonomy, it'll be awesome and we'll have all this mental health, but the data is coming back and the opposite is taking place. Depression has never been higher. Suicide has never been higher. Anxiety is pervasive. In fact, the big one that came in, life expectancy has gone down for the first time in decades. We were told that we would be more mentally healthy, we are falling apart. We have tried to find our lives, and we're losing them. We lack moral courage because we don't think that there's anything greater than ourselves. And rather than preserving us, it's destroying us. I think at this moment in history, we as Christians have this unique thing to offer. Discipleship is like a daily self-risk. It is missing out on things that, that we're told we need, and we really don't. Instead, it's living for something worth more than entertainment, worth more than comfort, than status, than immediate happiness. All of these things, good things. I'm not saying we should all go in the desert and be hermits. That's counterproductive to the kingdom. But, right, like, but in, many, in many of our eyes... That's what discipleship sounds like. It sounds so limiting. But the truth is that it's freedom. And so what could be so great that it would be worth setting aside the American consumeristic way of life? What could be that good that I would be willing to follow the way of Jesus? Check out verses 34 to 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. It's interesting. In the nation of Israel, in ancient Israel, the priests would wear these robes. And on the hem of the robe was a blue thread that was sewn through. And it had a pretty significant symbolic meaning. The, the blue thread at the hem of the robe, the edges of the robe, was symbolized this idea that, that Israel doesn't just exist for itself, it reaches out to the nations. That Israel was meant to exist as a light to the nations, drawing all people into the multi ethnic, multicultural, multinational nation of the kingdom of heaven. And that is not a calling that they lived up to. Jesus, in this moment, I think Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is doing what Israel and what we have failed to do. Jesus is the one who represents God's love to the world. He he is the one that invites us to cooperate in bringing his kingdom. He is the one who brings the healing of God's kingdom to the nations. And just as he did with the feeding of the 5,000, he invites us to cooperate in that task, in this incredible task. So what is so valuable, so amazing, that it it would inspire self-risk? It's God and his kingdom. But how do we take part? How do we join in? Through faith. When Peter gets out onto the waves, he begins to sink when he, when he sees the, the, the wind, right? So in other words, the way the wind is kicking up the waves, Peter sees that and he thinks, I'm going to die. And so he, he starts to sink. And and Jesus reaches out as he calls, save me, and Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, a lot of us interpret that to mean, oh, Peter, like his, like video games where you have, like, your level up bar, right? you like, you see this little bar going up and up and up, and then you hit, hit the top, and then you get to, like, the next level. It's like his level up bar of faith was not high enough, right? That's how we interpret that passage, as though he just didn't have enough faith to keep walking on the waves. And, and I think that's, that's a sad way of interpreting the passage because then when we experience something really hard in life, we blame ourselves for it. Because it's like, well, man, I just didn't have enough faith to avoid this terrible suffering. So I hope between Aaron's sermon last week and, and this moment right now, you can be freed of that if that's something that you've ever struggled with. That is, a, that is a lie. Suffering happens to all of us because we live in a world corrupted to the core by sin. That's why suffering happens. And so it's not just that Peter has lacked faith, it's that in that moment he put his faith in the wrong thing. It's not the measure of our faith that's the key here, it's the object. It's not how much faith we have, it's who our faith is in. Peter starts to look away from Jesus and he looks to the waves. And he starts to measure his own resources against these waves, like, do I have what it takes to beat this, you know, Hurricane-level storm or whatever. Clearly not. So he forgets the strength of Christ. The disciples, they looked at the five loaves and the two fish, and they said, we have no way of feeding this crowd. And in both cases, they were right. We can't join in the mission of the kingdom by our own resources, by our own strength. Our confidence cannot be in our competency. Our confidence is in the abundance of Jesus' power and grace to sustain him. We go to him and receive grace and love in the cross of Christ. We take hope in the resurrection. We see the beauty of the world he's bringing, and it's out of that wellspring that we go out in love. It's out of that wellspring that we announce the gospel. It's out of that wellspring of hope and grace in Christ that we care for one another. And so we experience this freedom and courage to step out onto the water because we know the ending of the story. At the end of this incident on the waves, Jesus gets Peter back up onto the water, they walk to the boat and they get in and suddenly everything stops. And the disciples proceed to break the first commandment, right? They, they worship. They worship. And now for a normal Jewish person, if they watched what was happening in that boat, they would think, idolatry. These dudes are worshiping their rabbi. That's crazy. But what they had seen confirmed something to them that the one they saw walk on the waves was none other than Yahweh in the flesh visiting his people. And that in the same way that he calmed the storm on those waters, he would calm the chaos of our world one day. So they worship him in that boat. And it is not idolatry. They are encountering the God of Israel. God's kingdom has broken into our world and it will not be stopped. Jesus has trampled the waves. He has trampled the chaos of death, sin, meaninglessness. He has guaranteed a happy ending for all who put their trust in Him. And this ending is so good and so irreversible that we can risk ourselves in the present for the sake of the future kingdom. So take heart because when this story is all told and all things have been given away and all our love poured out and all the sacrifices made, we will stand with the disciples before the God who calms storms and feeds 5,000 and all of us will confess with the disciples truly you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are truly the Son of God. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage. A courage based not by assessing our own resources, but instead by assessing yours. The endless resources of of your power to overcome death, sin, and evil. The, The resources of your grace to overcome our weakness. And Lord, I pray that we would live like people who will rise again. Lord, I pray that in this volatile and vulnerable moment, we would not see those outside our number as enemies, but as crowds who are hungry, as hungry as we are, and that we would seek to bring them bread and fish from your hands. And Lord, it it is threatening what we set out to do as we seek to be disciples. So I pray that we would not look to our own ability to walk on water, but to yours. That we would follow you because the storm will not overcome the kingdom. So Lord, I pray that I guess talking poetically here that you would extend the hem of your robe to the nations. That we would receive healing from you and that we would be the sort of people you want us to be not out of legalism not out of guilt or shame but because we have encountered something more valuable than our happiness and we want that thing we want you and we want the kingdom
1: we love you Jesus Thank you for your grace.
0: Amen.